I grew up skiing the slopes of northern Utah, which was awesome. Day skiing, night skiing, it was all freezing cold, but it was incredibly fun. And of course, with skiing the mountain came the inevitable ride up the ski lift. Time and time again, which was sometimes good for friendly conversations or sightseeing and even occasionally contributed to some unexpected hilarity. I remember one time I had this friend with this big poofy red afro and he got his ski pants strap caught on the chairlift at the unloading zone. And so when he tried to ski away and get off the chair, he pulled the chair with him until the strap snapped and then his pants fell down. And he looked like such a doof just standing there with his pants at his ankles. I was laughing so hard. I mean, I had no idea at the time that I'd end up marrying that guy 10 years later. But all those rides on the chairlift also had cold, long moments, too, where the lift would slow down and even stop, sometimes for these long stretches of time where it felt like we had traveled to the mountain only to watch the world trapped at one single point. One time, the lift stopped for hours, and I remember being so annoyed at the wasted time, and of course, never giving a second thought that there might be some legitimate reason why the lift was stopped, like maybe it stopped because someone needed help. A recent example you may have seen on video was when a pipe burst under a chairlift at a North Carolina resort, unleashing a geyser of water shooting up at lift riders in seven-degree weather, forcibly knocking some of them off the lift and onto the ground below. I mean, if you haven't seen this video, you really should look up chairlift geyser. It is seriously crazy. And today's story is about one of those moments. I mean, not about being hit with a geyser, but one of those moments where content skiers found their ride up a lift suddenly interrupted with a long, probably annoying stop. What they didn't know was that ahead of them, far up the mountain, there was a good reason for bringing their ride to a halt, and that an unexpected hero had sprung into action to make sure the day didn't end in tragedy. I'm Jolie Hales, and this is Podsitivity. People around the globe love spending time in the great outdoors. Pretty much anytime somebody introduces themselves at work or at some activity or online or something, it seems like they always talk about how they love to do something outside in nature, whether it's hiking or rock climbing, surfing, mountain biking, snow skiing, kayaking. I mean, there's a long list of outdoor sports that people, like myself included, really enjoy. But there's one of these sports I don't hear many people talk about very often. Probably not because it isn't fun, but more so because it must be really hard to learn. The sport I'm referring to is slacklining. The first time I saw slackline, I was out for a run on the boardwalk of Huntington Beach, California, and there was this small group of people who had rigged up what looked like this long seatbelt a couple feet off the ground between two palm trees, and then they were taking turns trying to walk across it mostly without a lot of success, but demonstrating a lot of admirable determination, I would say. Maybe you're like me and you've seen a slack line at a local park or a beach, or maybe you remember the scene from that ever so amazing show, The Office, where Andy challenges his colleagues to give the slack line a try, resulting in a montage of hilarious tumbles from Dwight Schrute. 
Who ordered the hot apple fail? But in case you've never heard of a slackline, slacklining is... It's a lot like tightrope walking, except without the, the big long pole. You're not using a big long pole to balance. You're just walking uh, with just your body and using your arms, which you generally hold above your head to control your balance. And instead of walking on a rope, you walk on what's called a flat piece of webbing. Webbing is a material that is used in rigging and climbing applications. It's like rope, but flat. Kind of like the straps on your backpack that can be tightened or loosened, only a slack line is usually an inch or two wide. When I first heard what slacklining was and somebody told me that it's a piece of webbing tensioned between two trees, I was like, what's webbing? Are we talking about Spider-Man here? What's going on? That's Mickey Wilson, a lifelong resident of Colorado who grew up doing all the outdoor sports. A lot of skiing, a lot of whitewater kayaking, skydiving. Biking, cliff jumping, you name the outdoor adventure, he tried it out and he excelled. I grew up an only child in the country, very far away from lots of people. (laughs) So it was just me, my dad, and my mom. And my dad uh, used to be a professional skier, actually. He was a freestyle aerialist. He did backflips and double backflips on skis back in the 70s. And then he became a a ski patrolman at Copper Mountain. Mickey grew up playing the classic sports, too. I was super into baseball. Baseball was my main sport in high school. But it was the adventure sports that stuck beyond his youth. If you go into my garage, you'll see mountain bikes, road bikes, climbing gear, slackline gear, kayaking gear, ski gear, skateboards. Might be forgetting something, you know. I think it's important to be as versatile as one can be. And when you see Mickey, he even looks like the kind of guy who spends his time in the great outdoors, usually sporting long brown hair, sun-touched skin, and maybe a little facial scruff after a few days away from the bathroom razor, (laughs) topped off with a cheerful, everything's good demeanor. And while outdoor sports have been a part of his life since he was a toddler, It wasn't until Mickey was a freshman in college that he was introduced to the sport that would quite literally change his life. When I first tried slacklining back in 2007, it was really difficult because it's a narrow freaking rope that you're trying to balance on. And I I was very bad at it. And I was used to being a naturally talented athlete who picked up things quickly. So I was super discouraged by it. And I actually hated slacklining for the first two years. My friends would invite me to go slacklining and I would just go, meh. I don't want to go do that. It's stupid. I'd rather do something else like hacky sack or frisbee or, (laughs) you know, some other park sport. But then about two years or so after he had been unimpressively introduced to slacklining the first time, he saw someone do a backflip from the slackline and then land back on the slackline. And suddenly Mickey saw the sport in an entirely different light. That was friggin' cool. Maybe there was more to this elevated seatbelt than he had first thought. I got his email address and his contact info and got the list of all the equipment I needed. It turned out you could buy a pretty good slackline setup for less than 100 bucks. So Mickey rigged it up and started practicing. And truth be told, it wasn't easy. It's a tough sport and, and a lot of people really get discouraged doing it, I feel like. And that's, you know, that's good and bad. In my opinion, something I like to say is that A lot of times in life, the things that are most worth doing are the things that are difficult. You know, I mean, easy things generally don't give you, you know, the greatest satisfaction. And as he put hours, days, weeks of practice into the sport, he started to get a knack for it. And then I did pick it up quickly because I had my own slack line and I was doing it every day. I was carrying it with me in my backpack to classes. 
And that's when I, you know, I finally broke through the ceiling of that steep learning curve. And that's when it becomes really fun. He didn't give up and is grateful for lots of good, positive, you know, reinforcement from my mom and my dad. Part of mastering the slack line understandably involves mastering your sense of balance. In my opinion and in my experience, and I have a lot of it in the field of balance, balance is not you know, something that you're given at birth. It's something that, that you attain through practice and trying different things. Whether you're a skier and you learn balance through lots of skiing or playing sports or all these different, whatever, you know, however you learn it, it's an acquired skill. And by combining his natural athletic ability with loads of practice, Mickey found that sense of balance. Eventually you start to learn to balance, you get good at it, you start to walk and you just kind of get addicted to it. And then kind of the sky's the limit from there. There are guys and girls out there that have been training for years and they can do some of the craziest maneuvers on these slack lines, double flips, gymnast, you know, stuff that's totally like Olympic quality. Honestly, the slack lining should be in the Olympics because a slack line, especially a trick line is literally just like a balance beam, but made of trampoline-like material. And both balance beam and trampoline are in the Olympics. So <laughs> that's what I have to say about that. And had slack lighting been an Olympic sport, Mickey undoubtedly would have been a podium contender because eventually Mickey turned into an awesome slack liner. The hometown hero, Mickey Wilson! And simultaneously, he was in college being an awesome student and getting awesome grades. My first semester of senior year, I took 24 three and a half credits, which is almost like a double load. I was taking graduate classes in my senior year. And his slack line just went on the checklist of what to put in his college backpack every day. Like calculator, lunch, uh, computer, slack line. <laughs> and when he had time between classes, he'd rig up the slack line in practice, somehow also finding time to study and keep his grades up. I should have asked him how often he found time to sleep, if at all. I finished my master's in one year and I was pretty burnt out, to say the least. I had done a physics degree, a minor in public affairs, and then a, a master's in microelectronic materials in, in year five. And at the end of year five, I was just burnt out. I can't even imagine taking 23 and a half college credits in a single semester. I mean, I don't even think that was allowed at the universities that I attended. I had to like, you know, really, you know, a strong desire to be the best at whatever I did or to do my best, not necessarily to be the best, but to do my best. So when graduation came, Mickey was ready for a break. I was like, just ready to go be a ski bum. But then, but then slacklining fell in my lap towards the end of college, you know, and I got really good at it. And it was such a new, I mean, such a new sport. And Mickey wasn't just walking across the slack line, sometimes at incredibly tall heights, by the way, but he was bouncing and flipping and doing all these kinds of impressive tricks called trick lining, more reminiscent of what you might see in a trampoline trick competition. But instead of launching and landing from a wide bouncy circle, he was doing it from a bouncy little line of webbing. That's such a small sport. It's kind of like being a world champion frisbee player or hacky sack player or underwater basket weaver. And around the same time that Mickey picked up the sport, slacklining competitions had just begun springing up all around the globe. I just sort of rode the wave and got really into it. And yeah, I finished in 2012 with my master's and started driving around in a van with a bunch of other slackliners doing shows and competitions around the country. And then started getting plane tickets to Europe and South America and the Middle East for slackline shows and competitions. And 
Did a bunch of traveling. Went to Dubai like seven times. That was cool. And before he knew it, he was a world champion. I won Red Bull Baylines in 2015, Red Bull Airlines in 2016, Red Bull Slack Ship in Poland in 2016. And then I won the Altius uh, Airline Championship in Mexico, not Mexico City, Campeche in 2017 or something. Competitions took a hiatus during a couple years of COVID lockdowns, but when they picked up again, Mickey was back on the line, picking up third place at the Red Bull competition this last October. I'm pretty stoked on it. I wanted to win, and I maybe could have won if I hadn't messed up my last run. But to be fair, like, I'm 33. I have a job now. I have a wife, and I have a year-and-a-half-old son. And, like... (laughs) It's a lot harder to just like find time to train, you know, I can't just train all the time. Plus, plus when you're older, you can't train all the time. Your body needs like old guy recovery time. Gotta love it when 33 makes you an old man. (laughs) (laughs) But even though he didn't take home the grand prize overall at the 2021 Red Bull competition, he did win the best trick award, which he won by doing a double front flip into a backflip. You know, as one does. And remember, this is basically all on a flat piece of rope, five centimeters wide. And at Red Bull competitions, these tricks are done without a safety tether, 30 to 80 feet in the air above a giant airbag. Those ones are really fun, but also really scary. It's still really scary to fall uncontrollably, even just 30 feet. Because typically, slackliners are used to taking extensive safety precautions. The webbing itself is capable of carrying thousands more pounds of weight than is ever asked of it. The web locks that secure the webbing in place are engineered to withstand countless cycles and strain. And whenever you slackline high above the ground called highlining, you wear a climbing harness that ties directly to the slackline so you never plummet to your death below. I've fallen off a highline thousands of times and I'm still here, still kicking. That's what I tell people all the time with, with highlining. You can fall off a high line as many times as you want, and it's like taking a mini four-foot bungee jump. And it's really fun, actually. They even have a term for the bungee-style fall off a high line. Whipping. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah! (laughs) I did a high line over Yosemite Falls in Yosemite Park, and I think we were like about 2,000, 3,000 feet above the ground very high because it's Yosemite, you know? I know guys that have set up slack line, high lines between hot air balloons, thousands of feet high. You can set them up in Moab. Moab's a huge popular place for high lining and most of those high lines are around 500 feet above the ground. It's a really cool feeling to be just standing on a one inch wide piece of webbing and feel completely safe. Also really focused and engaged in this really intense balancing act that you're you're doing up high. By the time the year 2017 began, Mickey was a very well-experienced slacklining champion. I was still living the pro slack life. I, I didn't have a job, although I did have a job. I was a ski instructor at Arapahoe Basin, a very serious big boy job where I had to be there 10 or was it 15 days a season to teach ski school. So I could get my free pass. And on January 4th, 2017, 
Mickey headed to the ski resort to teach ski school, thinking it would be like any other ski day. Or better yet, Mickey hoped there wouldn't be enough ski school students to instruct so that he could instead spend the day free to ski the beautiful powder that had just dumped all over the mountain. A giant blizzard had just hit the resort, and the result was every hardcore skier's dream. Acres and acres of beautiful, fresh powder. And as luck would have it, having to drive in the blizzard must have kept the students away, and Mickey was given the thumbs up to hit the mountain at his leisure. Something he was totally happy to do. While he was walking around the lodge area, someone recognized Mickey. It was an old friend, Billy, there with a couple other guys. He was an old ski friend who I'd skied with uh, over the years. And he recognized me and he invited me to go ski with them. And Mickey was happy to oblige. And he introduced me to the people he was skiing with. It was our friend uh, Hans, a guy I also knew from college. And then their friend uh, Richard, who I did not know, but I just met him that day. And so it was the the four of us. And we go to ski when the, when the ski lifts open. And it's an amazing day. I mean, there's a foot of fresh powder and it was still dumping like really snowing hard. Mickey, Billy, Hans, and Richard were all very advanced skiers, and the mountain was their playground. They were jumping off cliffs, doing flips, having a great time carving through the fresh powder. And at one point, it was time for another run, so the group headed to the Lenaway chairlift, a fixed grip triple rider classic chairlift that, at five and a half miles per hour, takes about eight minutes to carry a skier from the bottom to the top of the lift to an elevation of about 12,500 feet above sea level, which for those of you who aren't familiar, is really, really high. High enough to get altitude sickness over time if your body isn't used to it, and definitely high enough where temperatures dip significantly below what they are at the foot of the mountain. Since each lift chair could only hold three people, Richard first took a chair solo so that the three other old buddies could ride up together in the chair directly behind him. And an interesting note about this chairlift, as of this recording, the Lenaway chairlift is actually scheduled to be torn down and replaced by a high-speed six-packed lift this summer, which is only a couple months away. A reason for the change is that the Lenaway chairlift, constructed in 2001, is a classic what's called a fixed-grip chairlift meaning the chairs are all fixed to the lift cable. They don't detach for loading or unloading. And because of this fixed grip, these kinds of chairlifts pretty much keep a consistent rate of speed, a speed that feels very slow when you're riding up the mountain, but can feel terrifyingly fast when you're loading or unloading and the chair spins around the bull wheel because it doesn't slow down. Unless the lift operator, you know, sees the terror on your face as you approach the lift station and then manually slows the entire lift down just for you. I remember learning to ski as a child and being absolutely terrified of getting on and off chairlifts like this. I can't count the number of times the chair shot me off like a rocket as it whipped around an unloading station throwing me to the ground and causing me to scramble with all my childhood might to crawl out of the way of the next unloaders. For at least my first year on the slopes, the scariest part of skiing wasn't the steep terrain, it wasn't hitting trees or losing control and skiing off a cliff, it was those fixed grip chairlifts. But I'm happy to say that lift technology has improved since then, and many of these classic chairlifts are being replaced by high-speed chairlifts, otherwise known as detachable chairlifts. Lifts that not only have larger seats and can accommodate more people, 
but the chairs themselves actually detach from the cable at loading and unloading, then reattach for the ride up or down, allowing people to board and unboard slowly and safely, as well as get up the mountain much faster than classic lifts. You didn't know you were going to walk away from this episode with a full chairlift education now, did you? (laughs) Trust me, this information will become more relevant in just a bit. Anyway, so in January of 2017, Mickey and his group boarded the three-person fixed-grip one-away classic chairlift, with Richard boarding solo ahead of them. The group rode the lift up the mountain, with Mickey chatting with Billy and Hans like friends do, and around eight minutes later, they reached the top lift tower and unloaded like pros, paying no attention to their chair as it whipped around the bullwheel to start the journey back down the mountain. But as the three of them slid down the small slope away from the lift, they looked around for Richard. And strangely, they couldn't see him anywhere. The snow was still falling, but it wasn't heavy enough to cloud visibility in the wide-open staging area just beyond the lift. And yet, there was no sign of Richard. It was almost as though he had just vanished. Which was very odd, because he was on the chair right in front of us. I mean, you know, it's a big place. It's not like he could have hid anywhere. And so for a couple moments, we're just like super confused, going, whoa, where did he go? What, what happened? And then we heard screaming behind us. The three of them turned around, looking back up the small slope toward the lift. They saw the lift stop cold, and then they heard more screams from below, on the other side of the loading station, out of view. So they popped their skis, and then they ran to the top of the lift, peering down below. They saw a small group of bystanders looking toward the chairlift above. And there, dangling from a chair above the snowy terrain, was a lifeless Rich, hanging by his neck. His backpack strap had wrapped around his neck and somehow gotten entangled with the chairlift itself, and he was basically being strangled by his backpack, just dangling in the wind. And it was really, really scary to see, actually. It was, I mean, kind of one of those images that burns, that gets burned into your brain. Apparently, what must have happened was that when Rich had ridden up the lift, the chest strap of his backpack was fastened securely, but his hip strap had been left unbuckled and loose on the chair seat. And somehow that hip strap had slipped into a crevice of the chair and gotten locked into place without Rich having any idea. So when it came time to unload and Rich tried to, you know, nonchalantly stand and ski away, his chest strap must have caught his neck and forcibly jerked him back around the bullwheel along with the chair, dragging him back over the descent until he hung, unconscious, with the chair resting a couple dozen feet in the air. I didn't even fully understand what I was seeing until Hans went, guys, he's he's choking up there. We have to go save him. And that's when we kind of snapped into emergency mode and we ran down the hill to underneath where he was hanging. And he had gone around the chairlift and back down the hill, probably had gone about maybe 100 feet before the chairlift had stopped. They jumped and they tried to reach him, but to no avail. He was just high enough to be completely out of reach from the ground. That was really, really, really troubling because it was like we were, you know, almost able to get to him, but at the same time, we could do nothing. The very concerned chairlift operator ran down the hill and joined them, and the four of them tried to make a human pyramid to be able to reach Richard. But unfortunately, it didn't work. You ever try to make a human pyramid in like a foot of powder in a snowstorm at 12,500 feet? <laughs> it's challenging. About two minutes went by, and Mickey and the others started getting really scared. 
It's one thing to try to rescue someone hanging from a chairlift, but it's quite another when that someone is being strangled with every moment, not to mention at an altitude where the air was already incredibly thin. Every second mattered, and it was only a matter of time before Rich would be beyond savable. Ski patrol hasn't showed up yet, and we asked the chairlift operator if he can just run the chair in reverse, and he said no, because apparently most chairlifts can't actually run that way. Which was news to me, and definitely adds to the complications of this scenario. Our friend was dying in front of our eyes, and we, we literally couldn't do anything. I mean, because he was kind of in this you know isolated area in between two chairlift towers, and just hanging in the middle of space like nobody could get to him. And that's when, standing there, with Rich's body hanging lifelessly above him, Mickey looked at the chairlift cables and suddenly had an epiphany. Instead of seeing a chairlift and a chairlift cable, I kind of just saw a tree in a slack line. I just looked at it and I went, oh, okay, I can do this. I knew right away that I had the perfect skills to pull off this move. Knowing time was short, he sprang into action. Without a word, Mickey ran up the hill to the lift tower above them. I ripped my gloves off because I knew I was going to need all the dexterity I had. And that was a bold move, I'll say, because it was like zero degrees up there, minus wind chill. And I start climbing up the chairlift tower on the ladder that's on the chairlift tower. Ski patrol started to arrive on the scene from below. As Mickey climbed, he heard a voice yell at him from behind to stop, but he didn't listen. He couldn't listen. No one on this mountain had the unique set of skills that he had. And if he didn't do something, what else could they do in time? I was in complete, you know, action mode at this point. I guess you could call it flow state. I didn't even really think about what they said. I, I didn't do much of a decision matrix in my mind. I just, I heard it. I acknowledged that I heard it in my head, but I didn't respond or anything. I just kept climbing and the metal was freezing. Every metal rung on the tower was so cold to his gloveless hands that it was painful, but he kept climbing. I got to the top of the tower and I kind of just looked at the cable and I went, here we go, we're doing it. He pulled himself up the rest of the tower until he was on top of the lift cable, saddling it like a horse. Ski boots would make walking the line impossible or at the very least much too slow, but he could still use the trained sense of balance he had and his expertise on a high line to do what the rest of us would not be able to do. With the cable angled downward along with the mountain, he slid down it as fast as he could like it was the world's skinniest slide. Just like he had done so many times before on a slack line, sometimes hundreds, even thousands of feet above the ground. The ski patrol below must have been dumbfounded. And with impeccable yet critical speed, Mickey reached Rich's chair. I grab onto the cable with my hands and I sort of do a monkey swing and swing down to the chair. And then for a brief moment, my jacket catches on a part of the chairlift and for like a split second I almost messed up the whole move and we literally might have had two people hanging from the chairlift. But he managed to get his jacket off, let go of the cable above and drop down onto the chair. Pretty much like Spider-Man. And that's when he saw what the problem was with the hip strap of Rich's backpack lodged in the chair and Rich hanging below being strangled by the chest strap. I thought about trying to just pick him up but he was hanging like with the length of the backpack and the belt, he was probably like 10 feet below the chair maybe. So I couldn't reach him. And so what I did was, I obviously was like, all right, I'm just gonna cut the strap. 
So I reach in my jacket for my knife. But when he put his hand in his pocket, the knife that he always carried with him wasn't there. In the grogginess of packing early that morning, he had put the knife in his lunch bag, which was sitting in a lodge at the base of the resort. So I tried one thing that I could think of, which was kicking the backpack to try and shock load that strap and make it break. But it was a big piece of webbing, so it wouldn't break. Mickey looked around and he saw more ski patrol arriving with a ladder that they would try to set up in the deep powder snow. But no one knew if there would even be enough time. If only Mickey had brought that knife. But just then, as if right on cue, he heard a ski patrolman yell from below. Hey, knife! Mickey prepared himself and the patrolman tossed the knife up at Mickey. Remember, they were surrounded by fresh powdered snow that was still falling all around them. If the throw was the slightest bit off, and if Mickey couldn't catch it, there was a good chance that the knife would land somewhere in the snow where it would take way too long to find again, and they would need to scrounge up another knife, which would also take time. And as you can imagine, time was something that they just didn't have. Mickey watched in concentration as the knife flew up into the air, almost in slow motion. It was a perfect toss. Tom Brady couldn't have thrown it any better. It landed right in my hand. And even though my hand was basically freezing and numb at this point, I still was able to catch it. And I opened it up, took the blade out, and sliced the strap that was caught in the chair. And it, it sliced like butter. Immediately, Mickey saw Rich's body fall to the ground and land in the snow like a rag doll. Which was a really surreal thing to see because he was just lifeless. And he'd been hanging by his neck at this point for about four, four and a half minutes. And it was just really wild to watch him plummet into the powder. And when he hit the snow, it was almost like a cartoon or something. You see, like, you know, they fall in and they leave a hole in the ground, like the shape of their body. He hit the snow and just poof, like snow went everywhere. And that's when Ski Patrol got to work. Mickey watched from above as Ski Patrol quickly assessed Rich's condition. He wasn't breathing, so they started CPR. Permanent brain damage can begin around four minutes without breathing. And it had already been more than that since this all began. All of a sudden, I was completely out of the equation again, because now everything was happening below me. And I, there was nothing I could do, so I just sat there and watched and prayed. Rich's friends stood by in bewildered suspense as the ski patrol team worked on Rich, until finally, he started breathing. Onlookers breathed a sigh of relief as Rich was loaded into a toboggan, and ski patrol took him down the mountain, loaded him into an ambulance, and he was driven to a hospital in Denver. It was a wild, definitely one of the most intense <laughs> four minutes of my life. Without a doubt. And so Mickey was left sitting there on Rich's chair, trying to come to terms with what had just happened. I had a brief moment of inspiration, thought of jumping off the chairlift into the powder because it was such deep powder, I probably would have been fine. I thought about that, having that be my exit from the whole thing. But then I was like, you know, it would be a real bonehead move to like cut a guy down, save his life, and then jump off of a chairlift and like, break your leg on a rock or something that's hidden in the snow. So he just stayed put, sitting on the chair. Kept my hands in my pocket, obviously, because it was so cold. My hands were so cold. The chairlift started moving again, and for about eight minutes, Mickey had the time to process the recent scene in his head. All the while, the passersby on the upward side of the lift had no idea that the guy riding down solo had just reenacted a scene from Spider-Man on top of the lift cable to help save someone's life. 
I barely knew the guy, but at the same time, it didn't matter. It was just like, yo, this guy's going to die right in front of us unless we do something. And I knew that I could do something because of my slackline skills. And that, so I had to do it. And it was, it worked out, it worked out beautifully. He got to the bottom of the lift and retold the story for an official statement. Since Billy and Hans had gone to the hospital with Rich, Mickey found himself solo again. So he got his skis back, clicked them on, and did what he had originally planned to do that day. He got out and skied the beautiful powder. And when the ski day was over, he left. That night, he got a call from Billy and Hans. They were in the hospital and, and he was awake and he had like a tube in his throat or whatever. And he, But he was fine. He was smiling. And it was a pretty, pretty awesome moment, you know, pretty, pretty great call with friends. And after the call, as Mickey was mulling over everything that had happened, he couldn't believe what a wild, unconventional story it was. Instead of just having a carefree ski day in beautiful conditions as he had anticipated, he had literally used his unique slacklining skills to scale a chairlift tower, slide down a cable, swing onto a chair, and cut someone down who was hanging by his neck, who turned out to make a full recovery. Then, I don't know what possessed me to do it, but I just, I was like, you know, this was a wild freaking story. I'm going to write it up really quick and send it to the tip line at the Denver Post. Just because, I don't know, I thought it was a cool story. So he quickly submitted it to the publication's tip line and didn't think much of it after that. The next morning, he went back out to the basin to ski some more. And before he knew it, he got a phone call from a reporter at the Denver Post who had seen Mickey's story come in on the tip line. And he said to Mickey, Is this for real, dude? <laughs> did, did this actually happen? Did you? Because uh, I don't believe it. I was like, yeah, dude, I mean, I climbed up, I don't know, climbed up a chairlift, cut a guy down with a knife. So the reporter wrote the story up and published it immediately. And before Mickey knew what was happening, the Associated Press picked it up. And soon he found himself talking to George Stephanopoulos on Good Morning America. Mickey, thank you for joining us. I know you don't, you don't like that word hero, but a lot of people think you are one this morning. As well as making appearances on The Today Show, Inside Edition, and seeing his story across hundreds of news outlets across the globe. A bystander at the ski resort had actually pulled out a phone and filmed the moment that Mickey had cut the backpack strap and Rich fell to the ground, and the clip was played all over TV and the internet. A few weeks after that, Mickey and Rich were both invited on The Ellen Show, where Mickey got to talk about his passion for slacklining, as well as retell the story to a captive audience and host. It's really intrinsic to, to humans to balance and, you know, and uh, that's do intrinsic. Like that. That's intrinsic to us? No. <laughs> Absolutely. It's not intrinsic to any of us here. It's you only. Ellen gave us two free trips to Hawaii with a complete, like, you know, week stay at a five-star beach resort. Because, <laughs> you know, it's Ellen. That's what she does. And beyond the sudden publicity Mickey and his story were getting, the incident actually helped shape his life in a way he hadn't planned. You see, before that day when his day of skiing took an unexpected turn, Mickey had been feeling a little aimless, like he didn't know if he was moving in the direction that would make him happiest in life. I was actually feeling really lost, and to be totally honest, at this point in my life. I'd been professionally slacklining for many years, and I, I wasn't, you know, I just didn't feel like I was really doing 
that amazing with it both you know i mean emotionally psych you know psychologically financially i was sort of just like kind of in a rut with the whole thing still enjoying it i guess but also just not not sure if it was the right thing to be doing and that was just this like sort of huge affirmation of everything because without all that ridiculous slacklining you know i would not i mean that's what put me in that place that day and with the skills to actually pull off the rescue so I like to tell people that it just goes to show that if you're not sure, you know, why you're doing something, you can never go wrong by just, you know, following your heart. So in that sense, saving someone else kind of saved a part of himself. And he's thankful for that. Lots of crazy things happen. And sometimes as, you know, as humans, we just we have to just go with the flow and do the best we can in the given moment. So I'm super grateful that. I was able to, to put my best foot forward that day and in those moments. I asked Mickey if he ever thought of the sheer so-called coincidence that a man who was helplessly hanging from a chairlift on the brink of death just happened to have a professional slackliner right there who was able to get to him. Dude, so much. I mean, well, here's another one to wrap your head around. I mean, I ran into them in the morning when they were planning their day out and in me joining their crew, I changed their plans for the day. They were trying to go out this backcountry gate to go ski some backcountry stuff next to the ski area. And I convinced them to stay in the ski area. He told them that the avalanche danger under the current weather conditions wasn't worth the risk. And so they ended up staying within the resort boundaries, which is why they ended up on the Lenoe chairlift, which is a funny little mental conundrum, I'd say. And beyond that, all the craziness went down because one simple hip strap of a backpack was unbuckled. This guy was an expert skier and he almost died in a silly mistake. You know, and you can die on a silly mistake on the freeway. You can die in all these weird ways, you know? So it makes you think a lot about how important it is to take life in your own hands and shape it, you know, how you want it and work as hard as you can to be the driver of your life and not the passenger. But that's the thing, though. I mean, no matter how much you can try and drive it as much as you want and you could still have something else come in from out of left field and change everything. So, yeah, that, that changed a, a lot of my perception of life. I kind of just was like, oh, it's time to get my life together. Through this experience, Mickey found a new resolve. I decided to ask uh, my girlfriend at the time to marry me and we got married and yeah, now we have a kid and stuff, and so that's amazing. And I should note here, he didn't just get married in the traditional sense. He married another slackliner on a slackline. Did you catch that? Their wedding was hundreds of feet in the air over a canyon in Moab on a piece of netting connected and secured by multiple slacklines all around it. Our minister also walked out because he was a slackliner as well. Of course he was. I had also rigged up a rope swing, like a 60 meter long rope swing. So after we got married, like I kissed her, picked her up, and then I jumped through a, a portal in the middle of the net to a rope swing. And we swung through the canyon. It was pretty sick. And no audio description can really do this justice. I'll post some pictures and links on PositivityPodcast.com so you can actually see it. It's one of the most amazing weddings I've ever seen. And today, Mickey has a family and a stronger sense of purpose. I went and got a job at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden, Colorado. And now I'm working there as a research technician 
uh, doing a bunch of really cool research projects all related to solar energy. Being a research technician may offer a totally different environment than being on a slack line over a canyon in the great outdoors, but the two really complement each other. Even if it's a tough day at work, I still know that I'm working on building a more sustainable future for everybody, you know, not just for me, but for my son and everyone on the planet. So I'm very passionate about renewable energy and that goes hand in hand with, I guess you could say, my desire to treat everything, beings, you know, the planet with respect and just living the righteous life, I guess. He still does slacklining and even competes, but considers his time pursuing it as a full-time career to be a closed chapter. Now slacklining is literally just for fun. Which is great. Honestly, I do. I love that more, honestly. And as for Rich, the man Mickey cut down from the chairlift that January day? He and I became really good friends after that. Like, dude, he got so lucky. He had a dislodged trachea and uh, bruising on the throat and stuff. But other than that, he was totally fine. No brain damage, as far as we can tell. <laughs> he and I were skiing powder together like two weeks later. When I asked Mickey what made him help in the way that he did instead of just standing by and waiting for ski patrol to take charge, he mentioned that he tries to be the kind of person who, if he sees someone stranded on the road, he stops to help instead of just driving by and assuming someone else will jump in. I knew that I had the perfect skill set to be of extreme assistance, you know, to be extremely effective at helping in, in a very much life or death situation. So, you know, who, who has to even think about something like that? I mean, yeah, could I have gotten hurt? Doing it, yes, but was there a good chance of me getting hurt? Hell no. I'm a freaking pro slackliner, world champion. You know, let's go. <laughs> well said. Someone like me would have had to wait for ski patrol, even if I wanted to help. So I'm glad Mickey was the person in the right place at the right time instead of me. A really important part of this of this life experience, I think, is helping others because, I mean, that really is one of the best feelings, you know, when you go out of your way to help somebody. I mean, they're happy, you're happy. It's just overall, it's, it's good stuff when you help somebody. To learn more about Mickey Wilson and all of his awesomeness, you can find him at trickymickeywilson.com. He's also active on Facebook, Instagram, and he has a YouTube channel with a lot of fantastic videos of his competitions, his tricks, and the rescue video. So you can search his name to be able to find more. And of course, special thanks to Mickey for being willing to share his story yet again. I think he's a fantastic person and an awesome role model. And I was really happy he would talk to me since I'm not as big of a deal as, you know, Ellen. I mean, almost, of course, but you know, not quite. And I also wanted to give a special shout out to this publication called Inspire More because they kindly featured us in their popular newsletter called Smile and they didn't even ask to be mentioned here, but our missions totally overlap. So I think you'll really appreciate them actually. InspireMore.com features exclusively inspiring news and it's updated daily. And they're really just a great place to go if you want a quick pick-me-up or a reminder of the daily good in the world. So check them out. Subscribe to their newsletter. Again, that's inspiremore.com. And if you'd like to support our efforts to shine a spotlight on uplifting stories like these, you can leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. I read every single one of those reviews, and I am so grateful for the kindness so many of you have already shown. Thank you. Thank you. 
And then of course, if you happen to have a lot of money and you're looking for a place to put it, <laughs> you could also support us on Patreon. Each dollar goes toward making future episodes and it really helps a lot. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, any podcast platform, and as always, PodsitivityPodcast.com, where you can see video versions with photos for each of these episodes as well. Thank you for going on this journey with us. And always remember, you're worth more than you know. Oh,